The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. To introduce myself, uh, I'm professionally a neuropsychologist and uh, have also been engaged in actually creating and leading workshops since uh, the young age of, I don't know what, 22 or something. So I'm 57, so that's about 35 years ago. Uh, my early training was uh, out, you know, in addition to going to UCLA, was at the height of the human potential movement. So I definitely learned how to play rock and roll before I went off to Juilliard, which is to say psychology graduate school, and, you know, and studied at the feet of Freud and Jung and, and others. So that's been some of my background. Uh, I got exposed to the Dharma in 1974. I began meditating then and have been trained, I'd say, in a number of traditions. Over the last 15 years, I've ha- found my home uh, spiritually, if you will, in Buddhism and in particular in the Vipassana insight, uh, original uh, roots of Buddhism, the early teach- the, bo- the teachings of the Buddha himself, uh, which of course is the, the lineage that this center and, and Gil and others uh, are grounded in, uh, although Gil certainly has background in Zen as well. So that's a bit about my background. Uh, I've been married for quite a while, through thick and thin. My first book uh, was called Mother Nurture, which Penguin published in 2002, which was about taking good care of uh, mothers uh, over the long haul, which I think is probably the most highly leveraged way we could change the planet in a single generation, Uh, which means also, of course, taking care of uh, partners and relationships after kids come along. So that was my beginning there. I've been in the trenches. My wife and I have two kids. Right now they're 22 and 20. And... They're still worrying us, one in particular, but it seems like it's all working out there, you know. Um, a go to practice, truly. That's some of my background. Uh, I got very interested starting about five years ago uh, with the intersection between, uh, as I'll talk a little bit further, uh, n- neuroscience and psychology and Dharma practice. And I've had a long interest in the brain and have studied it for a long time, but this idea of really bringing these two together has been uh, something that's just become uh, really a great source of personal benefit as well as, I think, wonderfully valuable and interesting uh, teachings and practices. And so that's what we'll be exploring today. Uh, Related to that, I I wrote a book you may know about, Buddha's Brain. I highly recommend it. Its author's a really good guy. Uh, A few other people thought it was good, too, including Jack Hornfield and Dan Siegel and Joseph Goldstein and and Gil and a few other people as well. So that. Okay, so topics for today. Uh, This is what I hope to get into today. And I uh, should jump out, actually, to a logistical point. Uh, This day will probably be about a third or so practices. Uh, I find that people really want to discuss this material and so it tends to be about two-thirds presentation discussion, about a third practices. Uh, the slide set, uh, rather than having you have a handout and kind of getting lost in the handout, uh, what I'll do is ha- very happily email you a PDF of the slide set. And you, might, you can also get tons of information on the website for the institute I founded, the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, which is wisebrain.org, which you can see they're on the first slide, or the second slide, rather, uh, as well as my personal uh, website, rickhanson.net. Okay? So the slide set for this workshop will be posted there as a PDF. Also, slide sets from other workshops, as well as lots of articles, talks, 
links to cool science sites, cool Dharma sites, and uh, kind of a greatest hits of scientific papers, as well as a bunch of other stuff. So that's what's on those sites. Uh, I have a sign-up list if you'd like to get the Wise Brain Bulletin, which goes out monthly. Uh, it's freely offered, as is everything on those sites, um, or, and as well as this weekly newsletter I do called Just One Thing, which has a simple practice every week. Uh, it's very short and sweet. Uh, it's gotten a lot of nice response. At this point, about 11,000 people get that newsletter, Just One Thing, which has really touched me. Uh, the practice um, uh, last week was Try a Softer Tone. Uh, this week is uh, Set No One Out of Your Heart. Uh, so you can see that's the nature of the practices. Um, so if you want to get on that email list, I put a yellow pad on the counter underneath the window just to the right over there. It's pretty obvious. It's kind of by itself. Um, I really respect email privacy. I don't inundate people. If you ever want to get off my email list, it's really easy to do that. You can always unsubscribe. I'll never give your email uh, addresses to others. And so that's uh, a good way to get the Wisebrain Bulletin, the Just One Thing newsletter, other information I sometimes send out. And if you want to opt out of that, you can always do that. And that also is a way for me to send you the slide set. If for any reason you just want the slides alone, just put by your name, just slides, and I'll just give you the slides, and I won't subscribe you to other stuff. Okay? That was complicated, but hopefully clear. All right, topics. This is what I hope we talk about today. The first topic sounds kind of fancy, right? Self-directed neuroplasticity. Uh, uh, it basically means using the mind to change the brain to benefit the whole being, as well as every other being you touch, which could include, ultimately, all beings everywhere. And so that's our first topic. What does that actually mean? How does that work? Uh, what's the intersection of mental activity and changes in neural structure? In other words, if we engage the path of awakening, as the Buddha set out, how, does our, how do our practices on that path gradually change our own brain? And um, what are some main themes or call-outs from understanding that that help us gradually um, pull weeds and plant flowers in the garden of the brain? In other words, how do we, over time, progressively create the causes and conditions of happiness and benefit for ourselves and others, and gradually, over time, in the brain itself, which is the final common pathway of all the causes and conditions flowing through us that lead to happiness or suffering, how do we also, in the brain itself, alter the causes and conditions of suffering and harm? So that's a consideration here. That's the first topic we'll get into that, including some cool pictures of the brain and things like that. The second main topic is a consideration of right mindfulness and right effort. Uh, immediately when you think about uh, using the mind actively to change the brain, it, it raises questions of what's the proper balance of right mindfulness, which has a fundamentally sort of receptive, even inert, not quite passive, but a sort of receptive quality to it, as well as wise effort, right effort, which is more active, where we really are trying to release the things that... that hurt and harm us uh, and others and promote the things that are causes of happiness and benefit. How do we weave those together? That's a real consideration for people. And then we're going to get into the bad news, which is the challenge of the brain's negativity bias. Um, to preview that topic, Mother Nature, uh, over the course of three and a half billion years of evolution of organisms, 600 million years of evolution of the nervous system, has been brilliant at crafting a nervous system that's fantastic for passing on gene copies. 
On the other hand, while Mother Nature is really tilted toward passing on gene copies, she accomplishes that in large part by being tilted against quality of life, which creates a fundamental challenge for us every day. Uh, you know, it's, uh, on the other hand, there's a great opportunity there for if it's the brain that makes us suffer, it's also in the brain that, that we can create the causes and conditions of liberation uh, from that suffering. And that negativity bias sets up a real challenge that has to do with the main focus of today, which is in the language of Pali, which is the uh, language of the earliest surviving written record of the Buddhist teachings, the term bhavana, which means cultivation. How do we gradually cultivate wholesome qualities of heart and mind? How do we gradually cultivate uh, wholesome uh, modes of being with others? How do we cultivate wholesome modes of being with ourselves. How do we do that? How do we gradually grow that, you know, in the body and mind, which means growing it in the brain and the nervous system altogether? How do we actually do that, right? That's what we want. We want to grow that, don't we? Um, How do we actually do that in the face of this negativity bias in the brain, which makes the brain like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones? So one thing we're we're going to do a lot today, which I'm very happy about, uh, is focus on, on good things, good facts, and good experiences, and really savoring them. And doing that in terms of different categories of good experiences, according to sort of three fundamental motivational systems in the brain. And marinate in well-being. One of the things that the Buddha really recommended, uh, in spite of his bad rep as a very bummer teacher, all right, dour teacher, suffering, bummer, suffering, right? He really recommended in all kinds of ways marinating in well-being. You know, okay. He didn't use that phrase, but that's my <laughs> phrase. Okay, so we're going to talk about that, which then is really about the last topic, which will be half of today. Half of today will be the first three topics. The other half will be variations on uh, the final topic. That final topic, taking in the good, um, has lots of implications, of course, for spiritual practice, for gradually cultivating steadiness of mind, bodhicitta, and open heart, um, loving kindness, and all the rest. It also has enormous implications for daily life, for you know dealing with stresses, Fox News, uh, uh, you know the economy, layoffs, fear and loathing in Las Vegas, you know all of that. As, let alone the people that we live with and look at across the dinner table or wake up next to. You know, as Jean-Paul Sartre famously said, "Hell is other people." So, you know, you know, in terms of the trenches of real, real life, uh, these practices that we're going to explore today have many, many, many implications, and they have lots of implications if you're in the helping professions or or work with children. We'll really get into some of those implications as well. Um, how many of you get paid to help others? I'm included in the hand wave. All right, it's roughly half. Therapists, physicians, healthcare practitioners, body workers, different people of different kinds, um, educators as well. You know, the implications here of taking in the good are pretty significant. Okay, so some framing here. As I alluded to earlier, we'll be working at the center of these three circles. I think that... Um, Intersection is the sweet spot. You may know a fairly well-known sutta from the Buddha called the Heartwood Sutta, where he talks about that. Um, you know, the real point of practice is complete liberation. You know, that's the real heartwood of practice. 
and visual guy that I am, I somehow see a tree rooted at the center of those three circles, growing up and out, you know, with bearing lots of fruit and lots of good things. So that's what we're going to be working mainly today. To create a little more context here, um, I think that this intersection of, you could say, neuropsychology on the one hand, the Western tradition, and then contemplative practice broadly defined as well as Buddhist contemplative practice in particular on the other hand is an example much as Oppenheimer spoke of where if you put two things together you can have lots of synergies you can have lots of cross validity checks and you can have lots of um, skillful means that emerge out of that intersection now in terms of addressing it even though I will be talking about uh, brain science, which is just exploding with information, it's estimated that the amount of knowledge about your brain, my brain, the three pounds of tofu inside the coconut, right? Right here and right now, somehow still mysteriously making sense of the sound waves bouncing on your eardrums and somehow generating meaning as a result. Um, the amount of knowledge about that system has roughly doubled in the last 20 years. Scientists know, which is to say, people know, about twice as much today about this brain than they did in 1990. It's pretty remarkable. On the other hand, it's a super young science, especially compared to older sciences like chemistry or astronomy, and certainly compared to a 2,500-year-old contemplative tradition like Buddhism. Uh, as the Buddha himself said, don't believe anything you hear, in other words, uh, or don't take it just at face value. You know, this is the Kalama Sutta. Uh, you know, really, really kick the tires. Really, really see what makes sense for you personally and, you know, leave the rest. Okay? So, or as Dogen said, you know, little questioning, little enlightenment. Great questioning, great enlightenment. Um, as my son said, uh, who is, he did a couple teen retreats up at Abayagiri. He came back one time. He just kind of said, you know, Dad, those Ajans have game. <laughs> I like that. I think Dogen had major game. Dogen's <laughs> hardcore. I love his writings. Okay. Okay. All right. So any, oh, logistical note, uh, feel free to get up and use the restrooms uh, while we're going, and we will have some formal breaks. The, the formal breaks will be fairly brief. Um, I will open it up for specific times for question and discussion. And along the way, if I'm saying something that just doesn't make sense to you, uh, please stick your hand up and, and, and ask a question or, or say what doesn't make sense to you. Um, let's see, I think I've covered the logistics in general. Any logistical questions? Oh, by the way, this is being recorded. It'll be posted on the Sati uh, website. Uh, I may end up putting a link to it on my own site, uh, but it'll be available here. Okay. Any? Yeah. We ask that people um, use the microphone when they speak. Great. So wait till the microphone comes to you. It'll pass. People pass it hand to hand. Thanks. Okay. Great. Okay. Great. All right. I'm gonna get. I'm getting excited. My engines are revving. This material's great. All right. Here we go. So let's do a practice. And in this practice, I will make five specific suggestions. And then um, we will just focus on the breath alone for about five minutes. One of the important themes here uh, that's not going to be emphasized today, but I want to call it out, is the importance of steadying the mind. It's interesting, when I uh, encountered Buddhism in the West, uh, particularly the Vipassana style, starting really about 15-ish plus years ago, it was a long time 
before I learned about uh, one of the three pillars of practice, which is the samadhi pillar of practice or concentration, steadying the mind. So I think that that um, absence is actually being increasingly rectified by Buddhist teachers. But for quite a while, people just were not going to talk about concentration very much, uh, certainly in the Vipassana tradition. I think out of fear that people would judge themselves for not being able to succeed at it. But in the Buddha's teachings himself, he really stressed the importance of steadying the mind, even to the point of profound absorption, which is what's given in uh, right concentration, which is one of the eight elements of the Eightfold Path. It's not the noble sevenfold path. It includes uh, concentration, which is tantamount to the jhanas, these four uh, non-ordinary states of uh, absorption. So if we are to engage in the Noble Eightfold Path, we really need to come to terms with those deep states of absorption. And the uh, foundation of uh, that capacity is in uh, everyday steadiness of mind. So taking on a challenge like paying attention to every single breath for five minutes in a row that's on the order of about 75 breaths for most people, is, is not that easy, especially in the beginning. The typical threshold is around four to six breaths, right? I've been there. I'm still there sometimes. So I'm going to do five specific neurologically savvy practices that promote steadiness of mind, and then I'll explain what was happening inside your brain when you were doing them, and then that'll be our entree. That'll be an experiential entree to some material that can otherwise maybe be a little heady. But that's the rationale for these five practices. Okay? Now, as with any practice, go your own way. I'll use uh, attention to the breath as the object of awareness, uh, but do you know, feel very free to depart from attention on the breath. Some people, especially those with a trauma history, find attention to the body and in particular attention to the breath to be quite alarming. Feel very free to put your attention elsewhere. Um, also, feel free to adapt my suggestions to your own needs. Uh, dwell longer on something if you want to or move on from something else. Um, if you just want to sit here and relax and space out, that's okay too. Uh, you know, take good care of yourself. Okay? So with that in mind, let's begin. So the basics of meditation are given here. Uh, most of you have meditated before. Perhaps a few have not, so... Uh, for all of us, uh, I think it always helps to remember the fundamentals, as in any area of skillfulness. Training the mind is a matter of growing skillfulness. So finding a posture that's comfortable and alert. Finding basic goodwill and good heart and good intention. And then resting attention in the breath. And if not the breath, something else like a phrase, such as, may all beings be happy, or may I be at peace, or an image with perhaps your eyes open, the carpet in front of you, six feet or so. You can have your eyes open or closed. You're not trying to control the breathing. And all the while you are opening to 
even encouraging positive factors like a growing disengagement from everyday to-do lists, email backlogs, unfolded laundry, and bringing attention increasingly into the present moment as well as encouraging other factors like a growing peacefulness. Openness. Presence. So to the first suggestion, set an intention for this sitting, such as staying present with each and every breath, or a more general intention, such as coming home to yourself. and explore setting this intention both top-down as a kind of instruction to yourself, often represented in language, as I've done so far, as well as setting an intention bottom-up in the form of a felt sense of the realization of the intention as a here and now reality. Perhaps getting a sense of embodying this intention through, in a sense, channeling someone who really represents it for you, like a teacher who seems really mindful or the Buddha himself. Giving yourself over to this intention and letting it live you. The second suggestion, as we move through the suggestions, it's good to retain some sense of the previous suggestions as in the background. 
And so now for the second suggestion, really relax. For example, take three or more long exhalations. So you're exhaling considerably longer than you're inhaling. As you exhale, really relax your tongue. Thinking into a kind of home base of deep relaxation. Third suggestion is to open to and gently encourage feeling as safe as you reasonably can. Not absolutely safe, because there is no such thing, but safer. For example, bringing to mind a sense of being in a protected setting. Among good people. bringing to mind a felt sense of your own strength and other resources inside you and in your life. That enable you to deal with whatever life brings.
so that in truth you can afford to feel safer. Notice any vigilance or anxiety. See if you can let that go. Notice any guardedness or sense of bracing against life and see if you can let that go too. Letting yourself feel as safe as you reasonably can. And the fourth suggestion is to open to and gently encourage without strain a basic sense of well-being. In other words, opening to and encouraging as much happiness as you can feel right now. Bringing to mind, for example, some things you feel grateful for. Noticing any resistance to feeling happy and letting that go as you can and opening again to things you feel glad about. perhaps letting a little half smile cross your face in the traditional suggestion that encourages joy, one of the Buddha's factors of awakening. without strain, 
as the Buddha said, gladdening the heart. And the final suggestion, sense and intend that the benefits of this practice, whatever they are for you, are sinking into you like water into a sponge. Sifting down into the mind, a golden light coming into your body and heart. A jewel in the treasure chest of your heart. The benefits of practice sinking into you as you sink into them. And now, with the results of these five suggestions, whatever they are, still present with you, with intention, relaxation, a greater sense of safety, some subtle but perhaps quite pervading happiness, and the internalization of the benefits of this practice, let's stay present with each individual breath for the next five minutes. If you lose track, that's fine. Just come back to it. Think of this as a kind of renunciation practice for five minutes in which you give over to the breath and let go of everything else.
was that for you? Let's hear from a couple people, both about the suggestions and then what, if any, benefit the suggestions had for the not easy task of trying to stay with every breath for five minutes in a row. And Marina will pass around the mic. So, yeah, right there. One I had never thought of was the safety instruction. And I thought that was very good because I realized that I carry a lot of fear uh, that I'm not even aware of. You know, it's kind of always on the line, just yeah. the fear of survival or whatever could come my way. And just saying that was really, really helpful. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think of that as, I'll explain more about that, but skillful means, um, because if we don't feel safe, uh, and I think, I think it's appropriate to feel scared when there's a tiger in the bushes, but as we'll get to later, we live in a world of paper tiger paranoia. All right? And so, um, you know, if we're anxious and vigilant, just particularly as a default, mat, you know, we hardly even notice it. It's the water we swim in, right? Just like fish don't notice they're wet. Uh, it's when we're in that vigilant, hyper-aroused, needlessly anxious state, besides it being unnecessary suffering, okay, it also distracts us from bringing resources inside for internal presencing. Because if we don't feel safe, we're naturally very vigilant what's out there. So by feeling safer, we can bring some of the sentinels in that are at the battlements, scanning for barbarians, right? And give them a break. Let them have a nap. You know, three, <laughs> you know, three hots and a cot, as they say. Uh, or bring them to work you know, by, uh, for something like steadiness of attention. So thank you. It's interesting that the Buddha had his own awakening with his back to the Bodhi tree. Right? The tree had his back because that's where threats come from and it forced Mara and the other forces of delusion to come at him from the front. And uh, as a Christian minister pointed out to me recently, uh, recurrently in the Bible, to pick another contemplative tradition, if you will, uh, uh, God is said to have said, be not afraid. And I think how many, just the the mudra of the Buddha, you know, the hand up, be not afraid. Uh, That's the skillful means, not just a kind of sentimental exhortation. Okay, um, another person right here? Okay, oh, you want to bring him the mic? or that, Maybe that's simple. Great, thank you very much. All right. Uh, okay, for me and... Is that on? Is your mic on? Maureen, is his mic on? Oh, yeah, it must be on, right? No? Is it on? Yeah. No? Louder? I guess what's been coming up for me recently and came up in this, in this session... Um, I came up last week, I went to a holotropic breathwork uh, workshop, was um, beginning to emphasize like the exercise that you just brought us through as a creative act. I'm so used to trying to just let it all go in meditation in various ways, but that there's, that there's an active role for me to say, why don't I try to let go of this? What if I, did, what if I, what if I create this environment right now and let go of this, actively hold that off, um, really sink in here, adopt this point of view. And it's sort of um, a counterpoint to letting it all be. It's about letting it all be, but it's about creatively, you know, working. We're going to close this door, put this incense on, do this, do that, and then I can let it all be. And finding that, that perfect 
ma- that manager, that good manager. Um, and this is what kind of comes up for me. It came up last week in the breathing exercises yeah. that I need to play an active role in creating this inner, inner environment. That's great. I really appreciate you saying that, and we'll explore that a little bit more. That that's that balance of right mindfulness and right effort, right? I mean, you're really you said it so articulately, um, and you'll you'll hear me say some of what you just said um, in my own way in a in a little bit. But thank you so much. You're exactly right. And how to how to navigate, right? How to chart that, um, uh, and moment to moment, you know, uh, is is a real art of practice. And we'll get more into that a little bit later. All right, good. Thank you. Well, how about I, I keep, I'll keep going if I could. I want to talk about what was uh, hopefully happening inside your brain when you were doing some of those practices. And uh, as with uh, all the neuro material today, there will be no test, okay? Uh, and so I'll, I'll move along through this stuff and don't need to remember the words in particular, although if you have any interest in or background in this area, it, it might be relevant to you. Uh, the first suggestion, setting an intention, involves top-down prefrontal cortex, the frontal part of the brain just behind the forehead. Uh, language centers for most people are on the left-hand side of the brain as well in the temporal lobes. And um, when we do that, we basically prime all kinds of systems in the brain to line up and get organized and go in a particular direction. Uh, I wanted to emphasize the notion of bottom-up intentionality because it doesn't get a lot of press, but it's actually really important, and it relates to a very hot area of research these days called embodied cognition. It's the understanding that uh, much of the thinking, reasoning, and so forth that has been held out in the Western traditions to be very refined and high-level and, you know, heavenly and all the rest of that actually is very grounded on lower levels of sensory motor learning and uh, understandings, if you will. So setting intentions from the bottom up, including through getting a felt sense of the realization of the intention, as well as uh, a sense of channeling someone who's an exemplar of that intention for you, like yourself on a good day, or uh, others who are teachers or historical figures or things of that sort, um, that's a great way to uh, put top-down and bottom-up together. And then giving oneself over to that intention and letting the intention breathe you. you know, that's for me at least, is a very powerful practice. And one thing just to call out that I didn't mention, but it's worth doing it, it's related to an, in, when, uh, related to an intention. Uh, it really helps to bring to awareness a felt sense of the rewards of that intention. In other words, the rewards of presence of mind, the rewards of mindfulness, the rewards of steadiness of mind. And so if we link rewards, which have an emotional valence to them, you know, they need to be feel emotionally positive, if we link those to the intention, then the mind and the brain, the brain naturally goes after those rewards. At the high level, the brain is incredible and brilliant. At lower levels, it's really dumb. It's simple. It's basic. It literally is like holding a carrot before the donkey. You know, the brain just keeps going after that carrot, that reward. Um, and then it stays after that particular intention, such as staying with every single breath for five minutes. Second suggestion, relax, um, related in part to the quick back and forth we had about safety. When the body is not relaxed, uh, when we're in a state as we are typically chronically 
uh, in the West and probably in the rest of the world too, at least some of the time, but certainly in the uh, sort of industrial nations of the world, uh, there's this chronic activation of the stress response system, this fight-or-flight sympathetic wing of the nervous system. And when we're in that state of just being keyed up or a little rattled or um, having a lot of information coming at us and feeling inundated by it, um, or being upset about anything, because key point, being upset activates the stress response fight-or-flight system. Okay? Feeling anxious, feeling irritated, feeling bad about oneself, feeling bummed. That lights up that um, uh, hot sympathetic nervous system. So when that's going on, it's hard to bring attention inward because it makes attention very skittery. Uh, our ancestors, we'll get to later, who are all mellow, or let me put it a little differently, they weren't our ancestors, as you'll see, but imagine you know, monkeys or squirrels or iguanas or little crabs. They were really chill, okay? Like, wow, just look at the light on the water. Wow, this is so far out. Just eating my banana here. It's really great. You know, I'm being here now, like, been listening to Gil. It's great. So mellow. I'm so present. Wow. You know, they, did, they got eaten. They got chomped. They didn't notice, alas, the shadow in the coming up or the crackle of a twig or, you know, that funny feeling in the back of their neck. Womp! The, the ancestors that uh, stayed alive and passed on their genes, and we are their great-great-great-grandchildren today sitting at the top of the food chain, they were the ones who were the most nervous and cranky. Okay? That's the brain. And so when those systems are activated as they are so easily, it's just hard to bring attention inward for any kind of inner work, including uh, paying attention to something as boring as the breath, breath after breath after breath. 75 breaths in a row. So that's why it's really useful to relax, to use the activation of the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system, which is the rest and digest wing that calms the um, um, fight-or-flight sympathetic nervous system. Several nice ways to activate the parasympathetic nervous system are long exhalations because it's involved with exhaling. The heart rate slows down a little bit. When we exhale, it speeds up a little bit when we inhale. So, you know, three to ten long exhalations really will tend to calm someone down really quite quickly. Another one is to relax the tongue, right? Rest and digest. So digestion, parasympathetic fibers fill the mouth. And so if we relax the tongue, that employs the parasympathetic nervous system and also sends a rippling cascade of signals throughout it to, to chill out. Okay? Relax. Next, feeling as safe as you reasonably can. Uh, for some people, that's difficult because it's alarming to feel safer. Because it's when you feel safe that they get you. You know, it's when you lowered your guard in your family, right? Or your last job or last marriage or whatever, uh, or last weekend with the in-laws or whatever, uh, that that's when they get you, right? So it can make people feel alarmed or frightened. And I think that's part of the art of practice then is to work with that and to be thoughtful about that. That's why taking a bit of an inventory about what's reasonable. In other words, um, we are really in a protected setting right now. We are among good people right now. And even more importantly, you are just chock full of resources. Everything from you know, strength of character, intelligence, to the credit cards in your, in your wallet or your purse. You know, these are resources to deal with life. And taking into account these resources is a way to help oneself feel you know, increasingly as safe as one reasonably can 
for all the reasons I gave in our little back and forth there. The fourth suggestion also can be controversial for people because it prompts um, the natural response uh, along the lines of, wait a second here, is this just being Pollyanna-ish? Or wait a second here, aren't we just supposed to be present with suffering? And of course, there's a place for being present with suffering. On the other hand, um, evoking positive emotion is a theme that runs throughout the Dharma, throughout the Buddhist teaching. For example, um, one of the seven factors of enlightenment, of awakening, is bliss. It's rapture, piti, bliss. Uh, Two of the five factors of concentration, traditionally, Steadiness of mind, because that's what was the point of those five suggestions. Two of the five factors are bliss, again, or joy. And joy is on a spectrum, by the way, which is important to appreciate, uh, running from you know, ex- you know, extreme and intense happiness and elation even, joy, being really joyful, through contentment, which is a milder but still affectively, emotionally positive state in which there's no wish for the present moment to be anything other than what it is. Contentment is a close cousin to equanimity. And contentment is also a taste of the awakened mind because when we're grounded in contentment, craving is cooled out for at least that time because there's no wish for the present moment to be anything other than what it is. Contentment is a really, really underrated and wonderful state of mind. And then that shades even further into an even quieter state that still is emotionally positive of tranquility. That's the spectrum of joy. Okay? So when we're opening to uh, and encouraging gently, we don't want to fall into the pitfall of stressing about it or getting mad at ourselves or mad at me. It does happen. Why does he want me to be happy? Happy on cue. What is it? What do you think I am? A human jukebox? Well, yeah, I do actually. Or more exactly, I think your brain is a jukebox. I think mine's a jukebox too, right? It's programmed. It plays all these songs all the time. It gets triggered. We have these stimulus response cascades. The problem is, what are the usual songs? I've been cheated and mistreated. When will I be loved? Right? That's the song. Or just all these irritations. That's the typical thing. Things happen. They trigger us. A lot of times, stuff bubbles up from the inside out and it triggers us, right? So, okay, We'll get to this later. There's a place for letting that song run, you know, to the point that's useful. But on the other hand, it's completely appropriate to develop a more dexterous capacity toward good ends of being able to push other buttons and protect the buttons that are problematic in the jukebox of the brain. And one of the practices of that, as the Buddha recommends, is to cultivate certain factors, such as, in terms of steadiness of mind, Uh, bliss and joy. Interesting neurologically, besides helping us feel good, positive emotion, particularly high levels of positive emotion, promote steadiness of mind in a number of ways. One, they're motivating. If there's a basic positive emotion associated with something we want to help ourselves want more and more and tip naturally increasingly into, the brain will naturally increasingly incline in that direction. In the traditional saying, the mind takes the shape of what it rests upon. The brain takes the shape of what is repeatedly activated. So if we activate positive emotion, particularly positive emotion associated with our wholesome intentions, like a growing steadiness of mind, um, then the brain will gradually incline in that direction. 
I think in many ways the key to a happy life is to help ourselves over time increasingly want the things that are good for us that we don't initially want, right? It's easy to pursue the things that are good for us that we want. We all know what our growing edge is. I know what my growing edge is, right? And what's around that? It's to help ourselves want, you know, more wholesome things. I think the essence of wisdom in a lot of ways is to choose a greater happiness over a lesser one. It's easy to choose good over bad. The tough choices are good over good, right? And that's a lot of what practice is about, is helping ourselves increasingly choose, increasingly incline toward a more sublime or more noble, a more, uh, a more pervading, a wiser happiness than the typical forms of happiness you know, we lean toward. So that's why coupling positive emotion with wholesome intentions is so powerful. Second, uh, the neurotransmitters uh, that are associated with positive emotion, and there are a number of neurotransmitters, but these two in particular, dopamine and norepinephrine, um, promote the formation of synapses. In other words, they promote the formation of neural structure. So if we want to help the lessons of life stick to our ribs, which is a key theme today, right? If we want to prevent, in other words, the lessons of practice, hard-won lessons, it's not easy to practice some, much of the time. If we want to help those hard-won lessons not slip through our fingers, you know, like sand through our fingers uh, in an hourglass, if we want to help them stick to our ribs, it really is great to have some positive emotion associated with it because that promotes synaptic formation. It promotes the formation of neural structures, which is the embodiment in the brain of the lessons of life sticking to our ribs. The third way in which positive emotion promotes steadiness of mind has to do with how attention works, which uh, through a neurological mechanism that's really cool. The basic idea is this. If we're um, steadying the mind through a focus on some object of attention, like the breath, or a loving-kindness phrase like, you know, may you be happy, or some investigation. Or in everyday life, we're trying to stay attentive in uh, a business meeting that's in the afternoon and someone's droning on. Or we really got to, we want to keep our head in the game when it's time to have a conversation with our partner, right? You know, one of those conversations <laughs> where your partner's, you know, when something's wrong, and it's probably you, you know, right? You just get away. But instead of that, you know, you know, lean in rather than the natural response is to lean back. But leaning in is a good thing. You know, it's enlightened self-interest. How to help ourselves steady our mind for that. How do we do that? Well, what that means is that we are retaining some object of attention in what can be called the global workspace of consciousness. That's a term from... Bernard Bars, who actually was my, one of my main dissertation advisors uh, a while ago. And um, in the brain, in the upper outer frontal regions of the forehead, um, is the substrate of working memory. Right? That's where RAM, RAM's located all through the brain. But that's kind of the headquarters of random access memory. You know, you like those chips? If you needed like a memory implant or more memory, you know, it's kind of up here, you know, in the upper part of the brain. Anyway, in that substrate... Uh, there are, is a gate that lets information in or closes the gate and keeps new information out so that you can retain a focus on whatever it is you're trying to pay attention to, like the sensations of breathing. So learning how to govern that gate is skillful means. Right? The essence of steadiness of mind 
particularly at the beginnings of the stages of steadiness of mind when it's more willful and deliberate and kind of executive, is to keep that gate closed um, so that we can stay with whatever it is we're focused on. What keeps that gate closed and what pops it open? Well, the mechanism is simple but ingenious. Basically, dopamine, a neurotransmitter, tracks rewards. All right? So as long as there is a steady stream of rewards, the gate stays closed. If the rewards drop, the gate pops open to look for new things that might be rewarding to keep our ancestors alive. Additionally, if there's a spike in rewards, the gate opens because maybe there's some even newer, cooler thing right, to suddenly start wanting. To use an example, imagine a monkey in a tree. Right, this monkey's working on the bananas in this tree. It's all good. Nice, moderate, steady stream of dopamine. Monkey doesn't think about other trees. Why think about other trees when you're getting rewarded for the bananas in this tree? The bananas start running out in this tree. Dopamine levels drop. Pop! Gate opens up. Looking around for other trees. Alternately, sitting in this tree, chomping on these bananas, it's all good, moderate levels of dopamine, steady state. Suddenly, a really cute other monkey swings onto a branch nearby. Whoa, new opportunity. Spike of dopamine, gate pops open. Forget the bananas, what's your sign? Okay, that's how it works. And you can just watch it in your own mind. If the object of attention... Uh, is rewarding, then you stay right with it. If suddenly something comes along that seems like new and important to pay attention to, dopamine also tracks um, uh, threats because, in effect, it's rewarding to get rid of the threat. All right? uh, then you know, you're, you'll get distracted. So if there's steady, high levels of positive emotion, A, dopamine is steady, which keeps the gate closed, and if the positive emotion is high, dopamine levels are high and therefore at the top of their range. So you can't get a spike. Okay? When we're absorbed, particularly in deeper concentration practices, when we're absorbed in um, bliss and we're just kind of awash in it, even if it's often a very subtle feeling of great, peaceful, wonderful, sublime tranquility, as the Buddha said, the highest happiness is peace. Right? It's still very luscious and very rewarding, albeit subtle. Okay? At that point, this, the, the, the positive affect, the reward of it all is so high that there's no pos- it's hitting a ceiling. There's no possibility of a spike. See how that works neurologically? And I think that's why traditionally, um, as I said, two of the five factors of steadiness of mind involve high levels, high steady levels of positive emotion. Okay. Turning, uh, my own practice really took off about, I don't know when, eight, ten years ago, when I was turned on to concentration by Christina Feldman, who's been a major teacher for me, and positive emotion. Those two, steadiness of mind and really working with positive emotion uh, has been really wonderful. It doesn't mean ignoring the sorrows. It can mean they're, they could be present. We could be angry. We can be in pain. We can, we can have a depressed mood. We could be worried about something. But it's held in a much larger space. To use the traditional metaphor, if you take a tablespoon of salt and you pour it into a cup of water, stir it up and drink the water, ooh, it tastes horrible, right? But if you take the same quantity of salt, the same quantity of sorrow, the same quality of anger, the same quantity of pain, and you pour it into a big, clean bucket of water, stir it around, and then drink a cup, you hardly taste the salt at all. Same amount of salt, 
but held in a much faster space, including a basic space of positive well-being. Okay, question or comment? Yeah, Mike? to its peak level, is the notion that training your mind in that during practice will then transfer to life experience? So a typical life experience now may deliver more dopamine than prior to engaging in regular practice? Great question. So um, the short answer is yes. In other words, what we it's kind of at a basic level. It's pretty mechanical. It's like if you, uh, you know, lift a, a weight, a light weight, a few times, you get a little benefit. Build out a few more, you know, you know, muscle fibers. If you take a heavier weight and you do it repeatedly and then routinely, like many times a week, you get more of a build out, uh, and then it transfers into other situations as well. Um, what gradually does happen is that um, the thermostat setting of positive emotion, people call that, you know, sort of the, you could just think it's called hedonic, you know, it means hedonism, happiness, you know, state of being. Um, that can actually change for people, that set point. A lot of research has shown that while people have a basic set point, that set point can change with practice, up or down. Horrible life experiences can push it toward you know, the um, uh, down and depressed end of the spectrum, whereas positive life experiences and positive practices can gradually move it up. And as we'll say more later, a lot of what practice is about, and that's the major theme of today, uh, is I think actually it's clearing out um, uh, pain, sorrow, suffering. It's clearing out suffering and its causes from implicit memory which is a major aspect of memory I'll get into later, which is distinct from explicit memory, which is memory of recollections. But implicit memory basically are the residues of lived experience, slowly sifting down into us, you know, moment by moment, second by second by life. That's implicit memory, which shapes our mood, the inner atmosphere and landscape of the mind, as well as our basic expectations, our response tendencies, our you know, perceptual biases, what we look for, what we ignore, that is grounded in implicit memory. That's below the waterline. We're mostly not aware of what's going on in implicit memory. But that's really where the action is, right? So as we gradually shape implicit memory over time, we gradually increasingly default into, um, you know, more positive states. Now, part of what we're doing there, I think, and it gets at a, a big controversy in Buddhism for thousands of years. I think part of what we're doing is we're inclining the mind in positive directions. We're also uncovering the natural state of, of basic contentment and basic calm and basic caring and basic creativity, the four C's, which are the default home base of the brain, which I'll be talking about after lunch. So it's okay to have both be true. We're both training the mind increasingly, and we are also uncovering what's always already the case, which is good news. Okay. How about one more, and I know we want to take a bit of a formal break in a minute here, so I want to kind of wrap this section up, and I'll, I'll stick around during the break too to talk if you like. 
Okay, one last thing then. Uh, absorbing the benefits. Uh, that'll be a major theme today. Um, and uh, of taking in the good. One reason why it's so important is because uh, the brain's default settings increasingly tilt implicit memory in a negative direction. So paradoxically, as I said, you know, Mother Nature has tilted for gene copies but against quality of life. By being actively for ourselves, we just level the playing field. But then at least it's fair, right? It's a level playing field. And one way to do that fairly routinely is to deliberately sense and intend that whatever is beneficial, whatever is wholesome, whatever insight you've gotten, whatever positive state of, of mind practice has opened up for you or you've experienced a transmission around, when the good things are happening, taking that little 5, 10, 20, 30-second moment to sense and intend that it sinks in. That can become increasingly just a way of life, which then increasingly makes the brain like Velcro for positive experiences, which then helps it be increasingly slippery or Teflon-like for negative ones. So, the next thing I'm going to talk about is why the brain matters on the path of awakening. But as we'll say more later, the brain is part of the body and bodies have bladders, so let's take a break. (laughs) So, how about 15 minutes? Please be back by that clock at 5 minutes to 11. Thank you.